As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. The C.S. Lewis Podcast with Alistair McGrath. Welcome back to the programme that brings you the thought and theology of C.S. Lewis. I'm Ruth Jackson, and before we dive into this week's show, I want to remind you about our book competition. To be in with a chance to win a copy of Alistair McGrath's seminal biography, C.S. Lewis, A Life, visit premierunbelievable.com slash C.S. Lewis book and sign up to our newsletter. But now for today's show. We return to our series on the thought, life and legacy of C.S. Lewis, and our focus here is on his final years. Alistair, we were talking in the previous episode about the kind of change in relationship between Joy Davidman and Lewis after her diagnosis. Um, I mean, it really did impact him in quite a significant way, this cancer diagnosis, didn't it? It would. Um, uh, obviously, Lewis had looked after people who were seriously ill in the past. For example, you might think of Mrs. Moore. Um, but she spent her final days in a nursing home. Lewis looked after Joy Davidman. And it was clear the relationship with Joy Davidman was completely different from that with Mrs. Moore. But um, what we see here is, I think, very significant, is Lewis being personally affected by somebody's death in that he knew them when they were well, he was there when they were diagnosed having cancer, and he was there throughout the long process of, um, of dying, really. And I think that that had a traumatic impact on Lewis. This was something which really affected him at a very deep level. And certainly, I think we can see this reflected in Lewis's writings of the time, and also, I think, in his attitude towards some of his earlier writings, particularly the problem of pain, which I think he began to feel was, how shall I put it, rather rather logical, rather intellectual, that it didn't really connect up with the experiential, with the emotional aspects of bereavement. And that, I think, is, is very significant, because there are those who feel that the problem of pain was a little bit too clinical and rational. And I think that by the death of Joy Davidman really brought that home to Lewis as well. So how did Lewis respond to the death of Joy Davidman? My own reading of Lewis's writings is basically that uh, his world fell apart. Um, I think that Joy Davidman came to play a very important role in his life and that um, her death, particularly her death, in pain under such very difficult circumstances really turned his world upside down. So we have to to really emphasize that um, this was a relationship which might have begun in a rather transactional manner, but ended up being a love affair. So I think think we can be very clear about that. 
So basically, Lewis was not simply mourning the death of a friend, but the death of someone he loved. And that, I think, it really helps understand why this, um, this death completely traumatized him and, in effect, uh, really forced him to rethink quite a lot of things. I mean, do you think that Lewis originally intended to publish A Grief Observed, or do you think it was initially just a cathartic exercise, sort of sharing some of his emotions and thoughts about what happened after Troy Davidman's death? Yes, that's a very good question. Uh, Lewis wrote to Arthur Greaves once saying that when you were going through a difficult time, the best thing to do was to write about because that would help you, um, in effect, cope with it. And certainly, Lewis wrote down, almost like a journal, the way he was feeling, raw emotions. It's quite an unsettling thing to read, I have to say. It's very honest. And I, I'm not sure if Lewis intended this to be published. I think it, it's much better understood as Lewis's personal narrative, as a way, in effect, of helping him to cope with it. That would make perfect sense. But at some point, I think Lewis felt that maybe others would benefit from this as well. And so it became a book. Uh, and the book, of course, is A Grief Observed, uh, and it is widely used to this day as a classic account of the grieving process. And uh, in fact, there's a story told that um, Lewis, in effect, um, was given a copy of this book. Lewis wrote it under a pen name. Um, as a way of, of help coping with his own bereavement because it was so successful. Well, his friends thought, you know, this is a good book written by somebody else, you know, let's give it to Lewis. But Lewis, I think, really saw this primarily as self-therapy. The fact that it has proved so helpful to other people, if you like, is a bonus. And as you mentioned there, it was published originally under a pseudonym. Why was that, do you think? I think Lewis felt that um, he had to protect people himself but also his friends, uh, and therefore it was best, he thought, to um, simply write it anonymously. It was very much out of line with his earlier writings, and that might have caused puzzlement to other people. And so he had it published by Faber and Faber, which was not his usual publisher. And T.S. Eliot, who didn't go on very well with Lewis, uh, was, of course, intimately involved in assessing the proposal and realized immediately who this was and um, was one of those who I think um, A, helped Lewis to find a suitable pen name um, for the book and then of course also um, uh, to kind of way help publicize it. So certainly it was a, a very um, unusual book. Not only was it published under um, a, a, a kind of pen name, but also, I think it was very much, um, if you like, um, out of line with Lewis's earlier writings. Was C.S. Lewis's conclusion in A Grief Observed different from his previous The Problem of Pain? Or was it just what he was writing about and the way he was writing? Was, it, was that what was different, the way rather than the actual content? For me, the same conclusion is reached, but it's reached in a slightly different way and expressed uh -huh. in a very different way. Uh, the problem of pain is very logical, and, and really, in the end, Lewis focuses down on the incarnation as a way of resolving the intellectual riddle of, of punishment, of, of pain. Um, in A Grief Observed, it's much more imaginative. Imagine I, I wanted to help this person. What else could I do but try and take their suffering on? Oh, isn't that what Christ did on the cross? It's a, it's a different way of thinking using the imagination rather than reason, but actually you get to pretty much the same place. What is worrying, I think, 
is that for a lot of people, um, a grief observed is a narrative of loss of faith. If you if you've read, or if you've watched the movie Shadowlands, that's the impression you are given right at the end that Lewis became a jolly humanist as a result of Joy Davidson's death, which is clearly not the case. Um, Lewis is absolutely clear in, in his correspondence with people that a, it is a narrative of the testing of faith, the successful testing of faith, and that's very different. But um, the way in which Lewis develops a grief observed, in effect, it is consistent with the problem of pain, but for an awful lot of people, it's much more persuasive because Lewis is prepared to enter into this dialogue at an experiential and emotional level, rather than what I think many people feel is a rather cold and clinical analysis that we find in the problem of pain. After the death of Joy Davidman, her sons Douglas and David came to live with Lewis and Warney. I mean, they were already living with them, but came to be looked after by uh, by Lewis and Warney. So how did they manage to do this with Lewis with his declining health and Warney with his alcoholism and sort of often alcoholic binges? How did they look after Davidman's sons successfully? Well, I think it was quite difficult because clearly um, Lewis felt that he had... Um, uh, a moral responsibility to do this. But a moral responsibility does not easily translate into pastoral care or practically in terms of looking after the needs of two two boys who, whose lives will have been turned upside down by the death of their mother. So we have to, I think, just recognize that um, while while we might suggest Lewis could have handled this better, he nevertheless did, I think, what was what he thought was best. He, he tried very hard to look after these two boys as best he could. But obviously, you know, he was not really very well placed to do so. I think his basic concern was, if I don't do this, who else is there to do this? And therefore, you have to do it because the alternatives are much worse. Who was Walter Hooper and why did he become so significant to C.S. Lewis? Well, Walter Hooper arrived in Lewis's life actually at quite a late stage. Um, he, he dropped Lewis a note. Um, he, he had read some stuff by Lewis and uh, offered kind of way to help out in any way he could. And um, Lewis met up with him and, and quite liked him. Um, and um, the real difficulty was that by the time um, Lewis and Hooper got to know each other, Lewis had retired. Um, he didn't have an income anymore. And he couldn't figure out how to pay Walter Hooper for any services he might render. So it was really a slightly ambiguous relationship. And, and as I see it, in many ways, it was Walter Hooper really wanting to be helpful and trying to do some things for Lewis, which otherwise he was clearly not capable of doing. So again, if we can just understand the context, Lewis basically has fallen to bits as a result of the death of George Davidman. Lewis was never very good at administrative-type things or organizational-type things. And uh, Hooper, in effect, was saying, look, maybe I could help you um, sort things out, and maybe I can help you in some ways by being, if you like, your personal secretary. And I think that was actually a very good idea. Hooper clearly was able of doing that. And then, of course, um, things got complicated because Lewis became very ill, and so everything began to fall to pieces. And, of course, Hooper... Um, really played an absolutely critical role after Lewis's death. And I have to say that as someone who um, you know, is a Lewis scholar, I, 
I have relied enormously on what Walter Hooper did to, in effect, get Lewis's work published, to organize them, to bring together and edit those massive numbers of letters. I mean, in many ways, Walter Hooper is remarkable. But his relationship with Lewis was, was very, very significant. I remember Morgan College Oxford had a, a day conference to celebrate um, the 50th anniversary of Lewis's death. I was there speaking, uh, Rowan Williams was there speaking, and Walter Hooper was there. Walter Hooper stole the show. Amazing. Wonderful recollections of his time with Lewis and also what he did to try and make sure Lewis's books went into print and stayed in print. And actually, Walter Hooper is critically important in understanding why Lewis remains so widely read today. How do you think Lewis approached his own declining sickness? Because I suppose it's one thing seeing someone you love get sick and, and walking them through it, but it's it's quite different when it's your own health that's in decline. How did he approach that? Well, Lewis seems to approach it with a certain um, grim realism. He was very clear he was falling to bits. He was very clear that um, that the medical procedures required to remedy everything that was wrong with him <laughs> were not going to work. Just... And therefore, in many ways, it was just a matter of time before he died. And he was quite open about this. In his letters, for example, in the final three months of his life, he really, his correspondence just quite clear. Look, um, I'm going to die and I'm ready for this. And he talks about what keeps him going. And it is very moving. So Lewis clearly is someone who knew that he was dying and was was ready for this. And do you think that had an impact on his faith? Do we sort of know where his faith was at in those final months of his life? There are some very moving passages in his letters in which Lewis talks about um, his hope in resurrection and his ideas about the Christian hope. And I think that those are very important because, again, there is this narrative that Lewis lost his faith as a result of George Davidman's suffering and death. And those late letters, I think, do make it clear this is not the case. Lewis has a robust belief in resurrection. And indeed, um, you know, I very often, as I read The Last Battle and then look at those late letters, can see a complete correspondence between them. There's this very strong element of hope in what Lewis is doing. I think for Lewis, the question was simply, when is this going to happen? So he and Warney were living in the kilns, and it was really just a question of when Lewis would die. And Lewis wasn't the only famous person to die on the 22nd of November 1963, was he? No, he wasn't. Uh, um, a number of people died then, but the most significant, of course, is President John F. Kennedy, who was assassinated in Dallas, Texas, and um, that news swamped everything. And, of course, Lewis's, Lewis knew his death was very slow in coming out um, and was completely overshadowed by this. But it is interesting just to note how two very significant figures died on the same day. We're going to talk in the next episode a little bit more about the legacy of C.S. Lewis post-death. But what was the impact um, of his death on the Britain, but I suppose much wider than Britain, because he, he you know, he'd travelled across the, not physically, but his works had travelled across the sea by this point. How did people respond to Lewis's death once they kind of got over the fact that it was JFK dominating the news? Well, news of Lewis's death actually was quite slow to break. And the reason for this, I'm afraid, is, is to do with Warney. Warney, um, kind of way, uh, didn't really make any particularly good arrangements for Lewis's funeral. A lot of people didn't know what was happening. And the, the funeral party was really quite small. And Warney was not present at the funeral because he was drunk. So you can see, really, 
Lewis did not really have the kind of send-off you might expect of such a major figure in British culture. But then as um, people began to realise that Lewis had died, there was a sense that something very important had been lost. The question was, has it been lost forever? Is Lewis very much a figure of the past, or will he be an ongoing figure in the future? And certainly there were a lot of people who felt Lewis has died. That's very, very sad. But actually, he's had his day, and we're all moving on. So we really won't be thinking about C.S. Lewis very much in the future. That, I think, is the expectation most people had when they learned of the death of C.S. Lewis. Well, we're going to be talking about the fact that that was clearly not the case in the next episode. But just as we come to the end of this episode, there seems to have been at least a slight reconciliation between Tolkien and Lewis at the end, doesn't there? Because Tolkien was actually at Lewis's funeral, wasn't he? Tolkien was there at Lewis's funeral. And I think that there wasn't what we might call a formal reconciliation, but I think there was um, an understanding between the two men. I mean, Tolkien knew what Lewis had been through and I think probably felt able to give him the benefit of the doubt. Uh, But it it wasn't an easy relationship, um, but nevertheless, it was a very important relationship for both men. And that's why I think very often it's best to concentrate on the, the positives of this relationship, even though the final few years of that relationship weren't as happy as they might have been. Alistair, we're going to carry on this conversation, but for now, that's all we've got time for. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the C.S. Lewis podcast with me, Ruth Jackson, and Professor Alistair McGrath. And don't forget, we're giving you the opportunity to get a free copy of Alistair's seminal biography, C.S. Lewis, A Life. To be in with a chance to win, visit premierunbelievable.com slash C.S. Lewis book and sign up to our newsletter. That's premierunbelievable.com slash C.S. Lewis book. Thank you for listening and see you next time where we'll be hearing more from Alistair on the thought, life and legacy of C.S. Lewis.